Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. Humans of Magic is sponsored by the wonderful folks at Channel Fireball. Channel Fireball is the place to go for all of your magic needs, with a huge selection of sealed product, singles, accessories, and more. Get your Throne of Eldraine pre-orders in today with Channel Fireball. They also have great articles and fantastic videos, so go check out channelfireball.com. Humans of Magic is also sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live transforms the way you interact with magic broadcasts. If you're streaming Magic Arena, the latest CBL Twitch extension is super sweet. If you want access to the beta, just reach out to CBL on Twitter. We'll hook you up. And, 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 my man Koopla, who provides all of the wonderful music you hear in this podcast, just dropped his latest EP, Coniferous. Please show him some love. Stream, listen, do whatever you got to do to hear his latest work. Follow him on Twitter at Kupla Sound. That's K-U-P-L-A-S-O-U-N-D. And you can also find him wherever music is found. September is already here. I have a few items to announce. Item number one, the Humans of Magic book is on track for release next month for the month of October. I am super excited about this book as it's been over a year in the making. To stay updated and get exclusive content not in the book, go to humansandmagic.com and join my mailing list. Once you sign up, you'll automatically be entered into the draw to win a free copy of the new book. Once again, that's humansandmagic.com. Item number two, I am going to be playing some Magic the Gathering this month in the United States of America. I'll be playing Star City Games Syracuse on September 14th, followed by Magic Fest Atlanta on September 20th. If you happen to be there, please come by and say hi. I love to meet as many listeners as possible, and I promise I won't bite. Item number three, there is going to be a huge, gigantic legacy tournament held in Beijing, China in November. On November 2nd and 3rd, we're running a 9K cash prize tournament for the low, low buy-in of $42. No, that's not a typo. All cash prizes are guaranteed. We had 150 players show up last year, and if you spike the event, you're basically paying for your entire trip here. It's basically the largest payout of any tournament on the planet. As I live in Beijing and I'm connected to the scene here, I'm the official coordinator. If you want to play some legacy for all the marbles, just hit me up on Twitter and I'll give you all the details. That's it for the announcements. Now it's time for episode 56 with Vincent Chu, better known in streaming and esports circles as Detsy. And man oh man, I had a great time talking to him. I first experienced Detsy in a draft walkthrough video that he recorded with Ben Stark, and I've been a fan of his ever since. Of course, in this conversation, we're going way beyond the surface level stuff. Detsy is new to magic streaming, but he's been working in the esports industry for years and years and years. And let me tell you, he's got some battle scars to share. Without further ado, here's Humans of Magic with Detsy.
today on Humans of Magic, I have one of the best streamers in the game today. I have Vincent Desi Chu. Desi, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. It's a huge honor. Thanks for uh, being interested in my life story, I suppose. I'm a big fan of your stream. I also think you're super dedicated to your craft. And I think that's definitely one of the things that I want to learn more about today. Sweet, sweet. Well, I hope that I don't disappoint and we learn a lot about whatever you're interested in learning about me. First of all, we're doing this over Skype. Can I assume that you're in Texas right now? Yes, I am in Texas, uh, right here in Houston, Texas. What are the circumstances in which you have found yourself in Texas? I live in Texas currently. I live basically in the attic of my parents' house here, you know, just dreaming all the time. My family and I moved here, I believe, when I was in, in 10th grade. So that's quite a long time from now. Contrary to my looks, I am 28 years old, so a little bit older than people think I am. People think I'm like, you know, like 18 or 20 or something. But so I grew up in Southern California, all over Southern California. Mm, I actually lived in a lot of places all over California. Probably moved now in my life, I've probably moved about... 26, 27 times in my life, which is, you know, it averages about like one place, one new place a year. But my family was always moving around for work and stuff. And part of that, they moved to Texas to start a business. So they graduated from dental school. They were going through dental school while my brothers and I were going through like a middle school, high school kind of thing. And they graduated and they wanted to open up their own dentistry, their own practice. So Texas was kind of the next frontier. You know, there's a lot more uh, promise, a lot more opportunity in Texas. So we moved here to Houston and uh, my parents have been here ever since. You know, I moved back from England not too long ago. I moved back here about two years ago now, almost two years. I guess it's about a year and a half. So, and (laughs) I haven't bought a car. I haven't gotten a house or anything. I've just been streaming and doing esports stuff nonstop. The time has just flown by and I'm still living here in my parents' attic. So a little bit about your parents. Are they first generation immigrants? I assume that they, did they move to the U.S. at a certain point in time or did they also grow up in the U.S.? Yeah, so I believe my parents are first generation. I think that's how that works. Is that first gen? I guess you're first generation, right? Because I I assume you're born in the United States, right? Yeah, so I was born in the U.S. and my parents came here during the Vietnam War. So they fled during the Vietnam War, as did most Vietnamese, I believe, around the world. Any Vietnamese you find anywhere, they probably left Vietnam during the time of the Vietnam War. Yeah, so my parents and my grandparents, they all fled here during that time. They all went to like high school and university here. And then I was... And so, so my brothers and I were first-generation Vietnamese Americans uh, growing up in Southern California. Very nice. Uh, how many brothers do you have? It's one or two, or you have more? I have two younger twin brothers, and they're twins to themselves, <laughs> I guess, as opposed to twins to me. Because some people get confused by that, right? I'm like, well, I have two younger twin brothers, for, but for some reason they think that I'm one of the twins. It doesn't really make sense. No, that would be triplets, right? <laughs> Yeah, like that would be triplets. So <laughs> you don't look exactly like them, but they look very alike because they're twins. Yes, exactly. So they they look very alike. They both graduated from from A and M, doing physics and stuff like that. So they are two years younger than me. I mean, you're obviously the the older brother or the oldest brother. I'm curious how the dynamic was for you guys. 
It's hard to say. I personally think that I'm the more YOLO one. I'm the one who, when we're younger, for example, we used to have a lot of uh, conflict with my parents and stuff like that. But my brothers were the ones who always just just kind of sucked it up, right? You know, like they sucked it up and they and they just said okay. Whereas I was the one who always argued back. I was the one who, when we were younger as well, I ran away from home countless times as well. Like I ran away from home uh, for over a month at a time at some point. Oh wow, that's that's pretty pretty significant, I would say. Yeah, pretty significant. In my twelfth grade year of high school. I actually ran away from home back to Southern California. So at this time, my parents, my brothers and I were all living in in Houston. And so, uh, you know, like I had some sort of argument with my parents. And so I actually ran away from home and I went to live in Southern California for a whole year, actually, to finish out my high school with uh, with my friend and his mother. So the same as in video games and in card games, I do like to plan out, you know, my like kind of my long term strategy, at least know kind of what I'm getting into to risk assess a little bit. Yeah, so I personally think that in a way I'm kind of more responsible in terms of having a focus and what I want to do with life and having goals like that. But my but my brothers are much more normal than me. They're very uh, they don't go that crazy, I suppose. Uh, I'm always the one that people in my family worry about. For me, I just feel bad if I'm not going 200 miles per hour, um, you know, chasing whatever I want to chase. And whether that works out or whether it doesn't, you know, most of the time it doesn't work out (laughs) just because I, I mean, I guess that's just how life works, right? Like, it's just very normal to just fall a little bit short of what you wanted to do. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't regret it. That's kind of my favorite part about myself that I really like to just go for it. Like my brothers have dreams and stuff of as well, of course, but they're always more reasonable, I suppose. Like, and they're they're a lot more rational than I am, you know, as physicists and stuff, I suppose. Desi, I want to start off by just sort of asking you about maybe the most important thing that you represent yourself as, which is your your handle, right? So, how did you actually get your name Desi? Like, how what's the origin story behind that? Okay, so. My favorite character from any game is actually a Skull Kid from Majora's Mask. So for those of you who don't know about Skull Kid, he's just like kind of the the very mysterious character in the game that just has a skull mask, right? And you don't really know kind of what he's about, if he's an enemy or a friend. And um, in all of my handles since since I played Majora's Mask, I've always tried to have some sort of element of like skulls or like death or something like that. I used to play these MMOs where my name was uh, Saint Death, right? Like ST Death. And I just think it's so funny, just that kind of uh, the ambiguity of having having a life as a character named and representing death. I think that's just something very special to me. It kind of emphasizes the fact that well we're we're all mortal and we're all you know treading that thin line between life and death but in our modern society at least in the west we don't really think about it so i really i always like these themes right like these kind of dark themes and uh death sea was just basically just death with with uh with a suffix on it see so that i just wanted a username that i can get everywhere that it's the same username and I don't have to add anything special to it, right? Like, I don't want to be, like, 
death MTG or death HS for Hearthstone or something like that. So I just played around until I found one that worked on everything, and Desi was it. This was um, also before I delved into esports, so I had no idea that this was going to be like a name that was actually important that people were going to say. A lot of people from different countries as well have a hard time saying death C. For Americans, it's okay, but it's caused a lot of problems in my career. So, uh, yeah, I assume that's kind of most people's usernames. Most people just make a username, and if it sticks, it's kind of accidental, right? So, same with me. How old were you when you first started using this handle? It was actually when I had first moved to England. I was actually, I was in the second year of university in England. So let me see. Looking back, that was a 2014, actually. 2014, that was just right about when I was getting into Hearthstone. So I had actually moved away from Magic the Gathering. So Magic the Gathering was a card game that I was playing for years, living in Houston. And I had actually moved to England, right? So I moved to England. I lost my friend group. I no longer had that kind of that kind of usual the familiar faces that I always played with at my local game store. So once I moved to England, I actually left Magic the Gathering behind for the most part. Like, I played a little bit here and there, but it wasn't close to the basically six days a week that I would play at my local game store uh, beforehand. And um, so during that time, I had uh, I was visiting my brothers in Austin, Texas for, I believe it was summer break. Because I remember it being really hot, so it must have been summer. So summer of 2014, I had always made fun of this game called Hearthstone, right? And I was like, oh man, Hearthstone is just an easy version of Magic the Gathering. It's basically uh, Magic the Gathering with chaining wheels. There's no way I'd ever play that, you know, as a as kind of like the pretentious, stuck-up uh, card game elitist that I am. And, um, and uh, so I... Played Hearthstone and I got freaking hooked. I got so hooked. I was playing about 20 hours a day, you know, just like I, I'd basically go to sleep for three hours, wake up, brush my teeth, and then I would just keep on playing. I was so addicted. But uh, Desi was the name I made when I had started my Hearthstone account there. So quite a long time from now. Uh, let's see. How, how many years ago is that now? Like almost five years, I, I suppose. Yeah, I guess in video game years, five years, like you could play a lot of games, especially if you're playing 20 hours a day, as you said. Yeah, five years in esports times and in video game time is a long, long time. Yeah. So what was it about Hearthstone that drew you in? Because, it, you know, for a lot of people, they, they, they might have started with Hearthstone and then they go on to other things, right? I guess there's a different story for everybody, but especially given how complex Magic was, was it just the accessibility of Hearthstone being online and being able to play whenever you wanted that really drew you in. Because you, you mentioned that, you know, your preconception of it was that it was quite a simple version of Magic. So yep. what, what was it that actually hooked you in, like just like grabbed you? You know what I mean? Yep, exactly. So uh, as I'm sure many people know, Hearthstone, for the most part, is based off of Magic. It's based off of like the same type of combat fu fundamentals and the mechanics, right? You have like cost and cast for the creature. Then you have... Uh, you know, like attack and a defense, whatever you whatever you want to call it, it, it depends on the game. Um, so overall, it was very familiar to Magic the Gathering. But the thing is that when I pick, first picked up Hearthstone, it was just so different in terms of like, you know, how good I was because I was very, very terrible in Hearthstone. 
So personally, I really like it when I'm really, really bad at something. Like I have so much fun when I'm bad at something because there's so much for me to learn there. Um, a lot of it is like the curiosity factor, I suppose, just looking at just how just try, trying to figure stuff out. It's like a brand new puzzle. It's a lot of times looking at it. It's basically a brand new frontier for me to uh, to explore. So I always love new puzzle games, and uh, Hearthstone was one that was built in a way that was obviously made for computer as opposed to Magic the Gathering. So it was very, very simple to understand. It was just so polished and so refined. Um, and I think that kind of the factor that actually kept me uh, kept me playing Hearthstone even after I got home from Texas, after I got off from my from a break, I continued playing it just because, again, I didn't need that sort of local game store community that I had before. I didn't need to go out to go play with other people. Um, and as you said, basically the accessibility for me was everything, which is uh, which is partially why um, Magic the Gathering Arena is such a big part of my life today. Just because, well, it's the same. It's the same kind of thing, right? Like I, I can play without leaving my house, and I can. Um, I play whenever I want, however much I want, and it's uh, very convenient. Yeah. So I also want to backtrack a tiny bit. I also want to know what you went to university for, what sort of thing led you to move to England to do school. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So I was living in San Jose, California. Um, uh, I had moved here because basically, basically, long story short, again, I ran away from home again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I was having a lot of problems at home and my parents and I, we basically got into this agreement that maybe that's probably better that we take some time off from one another. Mm. Like you don't see eye to eye on a couple things, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, honestly for me, I think it was very respectable just because, our opinions and our viewpoints on life are so different that even the fact that they that they were that they were willing to compromise, if that makes sense, it still means a lot to me to this day. But uh, so I was living in San Jose, California. I had just finished my associate's degree, and uh, there was a program there where if you finish your associate's degree, you can basically go into, you get a, you get accepted to any uh, UC uh, university or, or you can transfer to any UC of your choice kind of thing. And um, so I was planning on going to UC Berkeley there in San Jose. I actually uh, fell in love with uh, sociology. So, so sociology was something that I didn't even understand. Just for the listeners, can you quickly just give us like a, 15, 20 second version of sociology and what it encompasses. Uh, yeah, so basically sociology is, uh, the best way that I can explain it is uh, is psychology of society. So on like a macro scale, just basically, basically how society functions and how society thinks. It's a very important thing when it comes to, to marketing as well. Just understanding how, how uh, people behave and how different cultures behave as well as a whole. So... Uh, I got super addicted to that. I think that, that that's like one of the most fascinating ways to look at life, to look at society as well. So I wanted to go to UC Berkeley for sociology. Now, the problem here is being the person, the absolute genius that I am, I had actually missed the deadline application for UC Berkeley. So 
I was I was so sad because for me I was just completely set on uh you know on like on like going to UC Berkeley. It's uh it's like one of the best sociology schools in the U.S. So instead of having to wait an entire year, I had actually looked to apply to universities uh, overseas because their because their application times are staggered. I guess it's different than our application times here in the U.S. So. Yeah, so I basically applied to universities in the UK, and I got accepted to uh, quite a few, but I ended up choosing Durham University. So uh, that's where I, I, I uh, did my undergraduate degree, three years of undergraduate study there in England, North England. So the entirety of your time there was three years, or you, or you actually went on to do uh, something after undergrad as well? Yeah, so I had spent three years there in Durham. And for those of you who don't know where Durham is, it's I I believe it's like maybe a three hour train ride or maybe like a maybe like a four hour drive from London. And it's all the way in the northeast. They're right under Newcastle. So Newcastle, that's like where like Newcastle beer and stuff comes from or where it at least originated from. Um, so I lived there for three years. And after that, after I finished my three years there, I actually had no idea what I wanted to do. Which is why I think a lot of people actually go to university, just because a lot of people have no idea what they want to do in life. So they're like, you know what? Well, I'll just, I'm, I'm just going to continue studying. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, I applied to master's programs. I applied to Oxford, Cambridge, and uh, London School of Economics for master's in sociology degree. And uh, it was really stressful because because I because one by one, right, as the results came back, I got denied from Oxford, denied from Cambridge. And then for and then the absolute final one was London School of Economics, and they accepted me. And I was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea what I was gonna do do if I didn't get accepted. I didn't have any plans or whatever. But uh, luckily, I did get accepted, and I ended up moving down south to London, and I studied at the London School of Economics, finished my degree there, and I ended up staying there for about another half year after that uh, until my visa until my student visa expired. So. What was it like living in the country? Because for someone who, like you, who spent his entire life in the U.S., I mean, was there any kind of culture shock, even if there was a minor one? Oh, man. Living in Durham University, it was, it really was basically the countryside. Okay, so you were forced into Hearthstone. I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically forced into Hearthstone. It, it was a really weird city because this city was only here because of the university, like without the university students, uh, the the city there would just be nothing. Oh, like a definition of a university town, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's basically the definition of a university town, but more so than other university towns I've seen. Like other university towns I've seen, you know, if the students aren't there, it's it's fine. It's like a slow life, but uh, there's still some stuff going on. But here in Durham, if the students weren't there, it's I have no idea what this town would be doing. I it was like famous for coal mining, I believe. For the geography of the city, it was in the dead center. There was a giant cathedral, and there's a cathedral. There's like a, like a castle in the middle, and the entire city center is surrounded by a giant moat. So there's a river that goes around the entire city center, and then there are these giant stone bridges. I believe that there's like three or four stone bridges that branches out of the middle to uh, connect to like the mainland, and. It's a really weird place where time it moves so slowly. I cannot believe how slow life is there. It really did feel like the countryside. It felt like it felt like you were living in a bubble. 
that time didn't exist. And it was something that I, I had never experienced before. I wasn't necessarily culture shocked by it, but it was it was so slow to the point where sometimes you would just you would just be so lazy because you felt like I don't know time just stopped. Yeah, I mean it must it must have been quite an adjustment going from San Jose to that. And what were your classmates like? Were they all people who were local to England, or were there also people such as yourself who moved there or moved to this country just for that? Yeah, so international students made up a large part of Durham University students. From what I understand, I believe it was 20% international students, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, that's really high. Yeah. Yeah, but you, but international students, I suppose, is where uh, universities make a lot of their money because uh, tuition is just, it's like sometimes twice or three times as much as a home student, right? So you can get a lot more bang for your buck if you, if you uh, accept international students. So there are a lot of you know, international students there. There were a lot of British students as well, but the thing is that international students and home students didn't really hang out together that much. So in my experience, most of the most of the international students kind of stuck together and then the home students kind of stuck together. It was it was actually really really strange. It almost felt like I guess if you could imagine going to some sort of foreign country, but the, but, but like the home students don't speak English, so you just kind of hang out with other people who speak English. Obviously, we all spoke English, but the thing is that I guess our life, our our backgrounds and our interests were completely different. So most of my friends are international students, which I assume is the case for uh, almost all the international students. Right. I think it's natural. You just sort of naturally form cliques or groups that people, you, you have similar backgrounds or you can relate to them on some level. They actually know, maybe they've actually been to California or they know where it is, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of the international students have moved all over the place, right? Which is the same with me. Like we've been, we've been all over the world and we have had a lot of different experiences where like the home students, they, they have like, that English culture behind them, which we weren't even familiar with at the time. So it was kind of hard to get along. I mean, obviously you, you grinded it out and you finished the, the undergrad, but were there actually, were there times where you felt kind of challenged where you were maybe thinking to yourself, maybe I should move back home or, or something to that effect? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm the kind of person who actually doesn't get homesick. Um, I've never been homesick before. And I know that's not normal because a lot of people, you know, like they miss home and stuff. But uh, for me, that wasn't really the case. I actually spent a lot of winters and summers and stuff like that, like, like winter breaks, I guess, there in Durham, mm -hmm. which was kind of lonely because, you know, everyone else went home and stuff like that, but I, but I just stayed there. Uh, it, it almost made me feel like I was Harry Potter or something, you know, like Harry Potter in one of the earlier series where... Everyone goes home, and then he's just he's just there by himself. Yeah, it's uh, Detsy and the uh, and the Hearthstone PC, basically. Yeah, basically, basically, it was uh, it was mostly Hearthstone and Magic Online, was what I was playing back then. Did you make any particularly good friends among your classmates? You don't have to name them, but I mean, were there certain people that you got along with really well? Yeah, I mean, uh, there were a bunch of people that I that I got got along with really well. My best friends were kind of. The were kind of my housemates. So I had two friends who are from Hong Kong, uh, one 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 being a girl and one being a guy, and we got along really well. We came from the same college. So in England, 
at some of these collegiate universities, they call them, like the ones with like really, really old history and really, really old traditions. Uh, Durham University, Oxford, Cambridge, these are all collegiate universities. And they basically have houses like in Harry Potter. So uh, we were part of the same house, I guess you can say. So we, after we left the house, we also roomed together as well. And uh, they're my good friends, my friend Daniel, who was who was the guy from Hong Kong. He he actually just got engaged, I believe. So congratulations to Daniel. That's really crazy. Yeah, we we used to play Hearthstone together. We played a bunch of games together. We used to like play poker, have poker nights and stuff. It was it was, it was really fun. Like we would go out, uh, you know, get food and stuff. Um, definitely didn't have too many close friends. I had a lot of friends there, but not too many really close ones outside of my uh, housemates. I see. So walk me through what it was like to then move to London for the master's program. Yeah, so moving down to London, it was, oh man. So I still remember the day that I moved down to London. I had I had gone on one of these random websites, right, where like you try to rent out a room kind of thing. And I had tried to rent out a room and the guy was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, so I'll I'll rent it down to you. Just come down and call me when you get here. So I was calling the guy, and the guy wasn't getting my phone calls or texts or anything, hmm. right? So I get down to the address he gives me, and uh, he finally picks up his phone and goes, hey, you didn't get my text messages? Uh, the room that you wanted, I rented it out to someone else. And I was like, <laughs> what? So I was in this taxi cab, yeah. and taxi cabs aren't aren't supposed to be – uh, transporting all of your luggage and stuff like that, like like that, right? I had right. all of my life belongings in that taxi cab, and the guy was like, "Dude, uh, can you get out? You know what I mean? Like, why are you? Yeah, like, I gotta, I gotta get a, my next fare, and yeah, 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 exactly. Like, like this isn't a uh, like a moving service. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh my goodness. So what am I gonna do? And then the guy goes, but but but, down the street, my sister actually has a room open and you can stay at hers and i was like what the heck is going on this is like the least professional thing i've ever seen in my life i'm probably gonna get killed but as but you know i might get killed on the street anyways <laughs> so i was like oh, all right well what choice do i really have so uh, you know uh, he so he comes down jumps in the cab and we cab like a few streets down and uh, so his sister and her son is there, and they're helping me like bring in all the stuff. And I was like, dude, this is the weirdest thing that ever happened. Yeah, uh, I ended up living with them for a year, and they were really nice people <laughs> as well. So I got kind of lucky there. We we ended up being really good friends. Oh, I'm glad it worked out that he wasn't some kind of serial killer trying to get you on British version of Craigslist or whatever it was, right? <laughs> exactly. That's basically what I went on. And uh, yeah, so moving down to London – London was so much faster paced than the north of England, and uh, for me, that's the kind of that's the kind of environment that I prefer myself in. I like that fast paced environment. I like, um, you know, everything moving at a reasonable speed. That I have a good sense of time, unlike living in northeast England. And uh, London was really fun. It was there's just so much going on. You could always like you can basically get anywhere just by taking the tube which is like the metro uh, or as they call it, like the London underground. And uh, the, and the food was a lot better as well. You know, food in England, notoriously the worst in the world. If you ever go to England, 
you know, there's a chance that you're going to starve just because the food's so bad. <laughs> I know, I know that a lot of my Chinese friends they say that when they when they move over there for school and whatnot, they're just they're not really homesick, but they're homesick for the food. It's like, you yeah, know, I, want, I want the hot pot. I want the. I mean, obviously, it's better now in places like London and Paris, but you're not going to get that when you're living in、uh, Northeast Eng England, right? So. Yeah, exactly. And even in London, you really had to know the good places. Otherwise, you're not going to find good food. It is it is so miserable. Most most of the time in England, like unless you're a good cook or something, you you can make your own stuff. Is that most months I just go month to month without eating a single good thing. Oh <laughs>、so、really? You're, yeah, you're just eating to survive for the most part. Did you start getting more creative and making your own food or your favorite recipes, or are you just kind of like? Focusing on gaming and just eating mac and cheese, that kind of thing. Yeah,、uh, since you know, since moving to London, I actually incorporated essentially just eating once a day, <laughs> which which sounds terrible. But... No, that's efficient, man. That's good. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Exactly. Like it's efficient. So I eat a lot for one meal, and then I don't have to waste all that time like doing dishes and like cooking and stuff like that. So I I lived seriously a two hundred mile per hour. Uh, lifestyle over there in England, or I guess like 200 kilometers per hour, or whatever. And、uh, a big part of why I was able to do that was just because of like the ways that I save time. And eating was unfortunately one of those, I suppose. But it worked out for me. Well, I think one thing that I'm kind of picking up, just not even from just today's chat, but also from our chats before, is that you strike me as someone who's very much about. Self optimization, like whether it's in a game or you know your draft picks or how you make your stream better, because I saw the video you had where you're giving advice to new streamers, and I think you're really you have a lot of you put a lot of thought into a lot of things, and I'm just kind of stopping you here. I'm kind of wondering how you like were you born this way, or were there certain things that kind of led you to develop that framework for doing things? I think as I get older. I do try to like be as proactive as possible, just because I feel, I don't know, a, a, a part of me feels kind of guilty whenever I'm not proactive, whenever I'm not on top of things, just because it feels like I'm wasting my time, right? And、uh, nobody wants to feel like they're wasting their time. I think a lot. I think a big part of it was just because, in, in a lot of things I've done in the past, it, I always felt like, again, I don't know if this is true or not, but I always felt like I disappointed people. You know what I mean? Like I always like I I never did something quite good enough. That's part of it. Do you feel like that was with your maybe with your parents or was it like with your friends or a combination or other things? I think it's I think it's in a lot of things. Just because I have very high expectations, I suppose,、um, which is part of the problem. So, like for example, in the past when I lived in Southern California, I used to, I used to skateboard a lot. And I was fine, you know, like I'm good compared to the normal person. But compared to my friends who skateboarded, I was I was not even close, right? They were always so much better than me. So I never felt like I could break that barrier that I could get to the next step. So I was always very critical of myself. I was like, well, why can't you do this? You know what I mean? Like, well, like why can't you do this? So over the years, I I tried to figure out ways in which I could improve and tried to streamline that process even more. Tried to think about it. Maybe from a different perspective, and it wasn't until later, much later, that I actually incorporated the concept of just, just trying, just trying to have fun and just trying to enjoy it, right? Because at some point, I was just so hard on myself for everything I was doing that I, I had actually realized it was detrimental to the process. That even if I got better, what's the point if I wasn't enjoying myself? So, 
I focus a lot more on just trying to enjoy things. And that's kind of the perspective I have these days. It's obviously developed a lot over the years. But these days, I really try to just find out like how I can improve myself in ways of uh, while also trying to have fun. And uh, these days, I guess the improvement process is just a side effect of having having a good time and having fun and trying to explore again in that in whatever new field it may be. In describing your process, did you ever feel at times that you were sort of hard on yourself to the point of being unhappy? Yeah, so I think that a lot of it, a lot of the times I I ended up being unhappy from just like the pressure I put on myself. Eventually, I guess there were certain specific times that actually that I that that helped me realize that that really wasn't the most optimal thing, at least for myself. Um, what one of the first games I kind of lost myself in was uh, was a game called Tetris, right? And, you know, everybody knows what Tetris is. So I was actually going to this anime convention. It was Anime Matsuri Con in Houston, Texas. I believe it was pro- probably nearly ten years ago now, and. Uh, we had gone there obviously to check out the you know to check out the cosplays and to check out like the vendors and stuff like that so that through that entire weekend i had actually not made it past the entrance the reason being was that right there on the side right 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 when you entered the convention center there there's a tetris machine right and so like this tetris machine i had i was instantly hooked onto the stupid tetris game I ended up spending the entire weekend there at the Tetris machine. Uh, I I didn't even go inside. <laughs> so I, I assume you had played Tetris before, but it was just something at that point in time that really drew you in even more, right? I think part of it is having some sort of compulsive personality. I'm just a person that can easily get lost into something. You know, that's kind of what my entire life has been about. Like, you find something that that you really enjoy or find something that you really want to spend your time on and the hours, the years, they just go by, right? Like you're not even working on anything. And it took me a long time to realize that this is kind of the way that I learn. This is also the way that I think is the most effective uh, when actually working on whatever you're interested in is is to be able to lose yourself, right? For me, I feel like if you can't lose yourself in something, then it's almost not even worth it in the first place. Almost like a complete immersion into it. Like you, you it, are you talking about just losing track of other things? Like you're just so focused on doing this thing for 20 hours a day that you, you just ignore the other stuff, even eating sometimes. That's what it sounds like to me. Exactly. I mean, like f- forgetting to eat is a normal thing in my life. That's <laughs> something that I've done a lot. It was very interesting because when I, when I started playing Tetris, there is a phenomenon in Tetris called the Tetris effect. And basically it's whenever you get so engrossed into something, you start to visualize you, you like you start to visualize it not only like while you're awake in the day, but also while you're sleeping at night. So people have the Tetris effect. They visualize blocks and forming blocks, finding ways to like complete the puzzle in their mind. Right? It creates a sort of compulsive behavior in your mind. And so the Tetris effect was something that was very, very real for me for many, many years. I would sleep, think about Tetris, wake up, and try to uh, reenact this sort of pattern that I thought of, you know, in my dream. And then that would just be like a vicious cycle through 
over the course of years. So just like a nonstop mind workout, even when you're not playing the game, you're sort of visualizing the shapes and you're thinking about how you can clear this line or whatnot. It sounds like you're really, really deep into the game. Yeah, so in the Tetris world, I ended up being one of the best Tetris players in the world. I was known as a person who uh, developed a lot of technology for Tetris. So there's a lot of strategies and stuff, for example, that's used today that I basically help develop. Holy crap, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's crazy. For example, uh, before in multiplayer Tetris, that's when two players are versing one another, there is a concept of timing, right? So like, if you clear certain lines, your opponent's going to get lines, right? Which raises the screen. And if you top out, then you lose. So there's actually a way to time it so that you, so that instead of sending lines, if they send you lines, then if you send lines, then it cancels each other out, right? So this sort of concept wasn't really, it sounds obvious, but it's not really a thing that was practiced back then, right? Like whenever you canceled someone else's lines, you, it would have just been by accident, right? So players didn't really understand that as one dimension of the game. So there was a lot of stacking philosophy and a lot of uh, spins and stuff in the game that I developed that these days is is uh, a common thing, right? E everybody knows about it, people talk about it, and people practice it, but it wasn't back then. That's really amazing because even when I'm playing Tetris casually, I never went beyond casual, but you know, now that you mentioned this, it's like, I never even thought about that when I was playing my brother. It's like, yeah, you should clear the lines as he's clearing the lines or do it, time it in a way that maximizes value for you. To be honest, as, you, as you're talking about this, I never even thought about it. Like, may, maybe I can equate it to, you know, how, like, there's concepts in magic like Temple and who's the beatdown. It seems so common sense now. But at the time, it's like, who knew about this, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, well, for some reason, I'm ahead, but I don't know why I'm ahead, right? Like, and, and uh, how important is that in Magic the Gathering? A lot of the things we, we know as common sense now were not common sense at some point, right? So that's... So that's something that I also bring into like my teaching and my philosophy as well. It's just that, well, how, how do you know if you don't know, right? Yeah. It's just uh, very normal to not know. And how did you, I, I'm really curious in this point because, Desi, how did you figure that out? Because like I could be playing the game and maybe part of the answer is I just wasn't so obsessed with winning or improving. But like, how did you discover these things? Whereas maybe other people might have played for even longer hours than you and may have not discovered it. Yeah, so I think that at that point in my life, I stopped basically worrying about trying to get better. And I was just so engrossed, so so captivated by just figuring out like what new things I can do, right? And it's the same as in magic. I always like to figure out new things. I like to kind of meme it up, as I call it, and uh, figure out how to break the meta, you know, like see what other people are doing. Well, how do I do it better? Or maybe there are certain things that people haven't done. Well, why haven't they done them? Does it work? And if it doesn't work, how viable is it, right? So that's kind of the perspective that I started taking uh, during during my Tetris days. And uh, I was just having fun, just being curious, just exploring the field, trying to figure out new stuff. And I think that whenever you're, ha you're having fun doing something, it's a lot easier to come across ideas like this, right? And you're like, oh, wow, well, hold on here. So instead of attacking them here, if I defend, right, like, and defending was not really a concept back then either. If if I can defend, then instead of topping out, then I can actually live for another day, right? So a, a lot of times back then, people described my playing as, for some reason, they couldn't kill me, right? Like, it was hard for me to, it was hard to kill me. People called me 
like sometimes people would use the term immortal or something, right? Like, oh, I oh I couldn't tell I couldn't kill him in Texas. He's immortal for some reason. He was at the top of the field, and I kept on setting attacks, and he didn't die. You know, and people didn't quite understand like what was going on. <laughs> Obviously, it's very easy to see that in these days. If it's just that no one figured that part of the game out. To use other analogies, like you know, with FGCs or fighting games, it's like sometimes people have pioneered this certain way of playing a character, and it's just like yep. the first time they play against you, they don't even know how to describe it because you're just killing them, and they're like, "How did how did this guy kill me?" Or, yeah, like what's going on, kind of thing. No, that that's insane. Like it comes from a place of wanting to have fun, and maybe more so than trying to quote unquote win or like be the number one ranked player or something else, right? Exactly. So for me, it's more about the pursuit of knowledge and the exploration of it, which is something that I preach on my stream a lot these days. It's, for example, a lot of times in the beginning of a meta, right, when new cards are released, people are like, oh yeah, this card's bad, right? Why are you playing this card? Isn't it bad? This crossbow card is terrible. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's terrible. Heart piercer bow, it's terrible. Clear the mind, it's terrible. Like why, like, why would you play Bolas the Citadel or Bulwark Giant, right? Like, these are, these are kind of cards that I'm known for these days in Magic the Gathering. So for me, the philosophy isn't about whether or not a card is bad or good. It's about how bad or how good it is, right? So again, it's an exploration phase. It's just forget about the winning, right? And we're, and we're going to try to figure this out. Like, I want a very clear image of what's going on. Part of that is like, a, a perspective from sociology as well, right? Like we don't really care about the good and the bad of society. We want to know what's going on, right? Like just completely unbiased. We want to know what's going on. We want to have a clear picture of what the what what the social dynamics of the society is, right? So you kind of remove yourself from the process, but realistically, it's about the exploration, about about trying to figure out the truth rather than holding on to your ego. So that's kind of uh, the perspective that I approach or that I have not only in life, but also in Magic the Gathering. And that's hard, right? Because ego drives humanity. I mean, to be at the risk of sounding grandiose, I think ego is a big part of why people say like this card is trash or this card is the best card on the, in the set. It's because they want to be known as somebody who called it, right? And there's, yep. a, there's a certain ego in that. It's like, yeah, I told you this card was good or I told you you shouldn't play that, with that card. For me, I think it's almost a paradox, right? Because you want to be open-minded, but you also want to have conviction. I think that it's possible to have both, to have a contrasting reality where you're open-minded and you want to try to try out all this new stuff, but you also have very, very strong opinions about things as well. I think that's very important for card games. So a lot of my students, for example, a lot of what I see from my students is that they actually don't have conviction, right? So they're like, oh yeah, well, this card's fine. Yeah, I, I like this card. Yeah, I like this card too. It's very important for people to be like, oh yeah, I like this card and I don't like this card, right? But in addition to that, it's also important to be open-minded. Okay, well, I don't like this card, but I can see it working here. Or I like this card, but I can see it not working in this scenario. So it's a fine balance, I think, but both aspects are very important to uh, card games, in my opinion. Yeah, as you're talking about this, I'm sort of thinking about what Jeff Bezos said, you know, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, I think he popularized the idea of something about loose beliefs strongly held, where like he does have conviction on, or he says one should have conviction on things, but you should also be open-minded, which is the paradoxical part, that if you see some evidence to the contrary to what you originally believe, you have to be willing to 
cut the rope or or be willing to embrace whatever that thing is you know yeah perfect perfect that's exactly i mean that's a more uh <laughs> a more fine way of uh basically worlds collide i guess it's like gaming you're streaming and and amazon so sorry to bring amazon into this i don't know maybe someone doesn't like that but uh that's exactly what i'm thinking about when you said that amazon owns us streamers anyway so it's all right oh yeah yeah they own twitch yeah i i yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> Also, for the listeners who may not be familiar with your stream, maybe you can talk a bit about your students and what what the the Desi School, as it were. The Desi's Dueling Academy, yeah. Yeah, the Dueling Academy, of course. Yeah, so every channel tries to have some sort of theme for their channel. Muffin Pastry Pie, she, she has like uh, the bakery, right? And I think that's very cute. And uh, there's always like some sort of theme. I think it makes it a little bit more fun, and it and it's good for branding as well. For my channel, I call it Desi's Dueling Academy. I'm actually a pretty big fan of uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! GX, which is like is so funny because for those of you who haven't seen Yu-Gi-Oh! or maybe haven't seen Yu-Gi-Oh! GX, the anime, is basically they're all students at a dueling academy, right? So like they're bachelors and masters in in dueling. And the top lecturers have a PhD in dueling and stuff like that. I just think it's so funny if there is this sort this sort of formalized way of uh, playing card games where it's so important that, that you can actually have like a university degree for it. So uh, Desi's Dueling Academy, that's kind of what I modeled my academy as. Of course, we have a lot of, I guess, educational elements to the stream, right? People come here to learn. I offer certain aspects to my viewers, such as like tier lists. So I rate basically the cards unlimited, which helps people who haven't played the set or maybe people who are struggling with the set. Well, I think this card's better than you think it is, right? Or I think this card's worse than you think it is. And uh, people can use that and people can uh, basically draft better decks because the uh, analysis, the rating of the card is more accurate. It's very similar to the anime where there's a lot of serious aspects to it. But then also, like, at the end of the day, it's a dueling academy, right? Like, you're supposed to have fun. It's just the dumbest thing ever. And I like, again, that kind of... It's like the contrasting elements b- between life and death, right? Whereas like Death Sea, where like a living character can be themed after death, but also a university can be all about learning, but also have fun, right? So there's these uh, contradicting elements to it, which I which I, I don't actually think are contradicting. I think that they actually work, work well together. But if you just look at it, you're like, oh, wow, it's, it's about learning and also learning things wrong. You know what I mean? So that's something that's very funny to me. I think calling it a contradiction is simplifying it. I like to think of it as kind of a silliness that you're willing to embrace because I think life can be silly. Life can be contradictory or life can be whatever. And I think people have fun when when you're allowed to get a little silly and it's not so black and white. Like it's it's not a real class, but it's it's silly and it's it's fun. Yeah, like the best parts about school, you know, are messing around with your friends, going out like for university and stuff, going out and drinking and stuff like that. So I think that that's actually a very important element of education, the messing around element. So, Right. Now that you're in London or going back to your life, you're in London. What happens after that, after you graduate from your master's program? And this is almost a segue into that. But also I, I want to know how you got into esports, basically. Yep. Okay. So I guess first things first, getting into esports, it actually started when I was studying in Durham. So I believe it was in my third year of university there. 
Uh, I had been playing Hearthstone for quite a long time now. I was, I was originally like a limited player in in Hearthstone, right? Okay, so Hearthstone has drafts as well. Go yeah, on. yeah. So Hearthstone has drafts as well, also constructed. And up until then, I was a mainly limited player there. But then I started dabbling in constructed, right? And I was like, well, can I hit? Can I hit a legend, which is basically mythic, like the mythic of Hearthstone? Can I hit the highest rank in that game? Right, because I think I'm good, but I have no idea how good I am. So let's uh, test the ranking system. So I actually hit, yeah. So I ended up failing the first month trying to hit Mythic, but then every month after that, for the rest of for the rest of up until I quit Hearthstone just about six or seven months ago, uh, I had hit at least a single time Legend, if not twice, on two different accounts. What enabled you to uh, to climb that mountain to to do it after the first month? You said you failed the first time or the first month. What led you to be able to do that after? Did you figure something out about yourself or the system or the the way you played? I think I just took it for granted at first. I just really underestimated it because back when I first started Hearthstone, right? And and, and again, this is me really really pretentious and really really thinking that I'm a very good Magic the Gathering player, right? I'm like, okay, well, again, Magic the Gathering, it's so much harder, and uh, Hearthstone's pretty easy, right? In the beginning, when I first started playing Hearthstone, it was on the first day of the month, I had actually just built a random deck out of the random cards I had on my account that I got from playing Limited, and I built a deck, and I got up to rank 5, right? Rank 5 is basically like, I don't know, maybe maybe it's like Diamond. Yeah, so that's that's really good, right? Yeah, and I was like, well, I just started playing... Right, obviously this game's super easy. <laughs> you know, it's uh, not even close to as hard as Magic. Yeah, how hard can this be? This is a simplified version of Magic. Exactly. So uh, when I actually tried to make that jump from the rank five up to Legend in Hearthstone later on, it it was a real wake up call. Right, I was like, wow, I'm trying so hard and I can't even get to rank five. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I I can't even get to rank five now. So the next month after that, I was like, okay, well. You know, instead of trying to play my my uh, my brews and stuff, which is what which is what I did a lot when I played constructed and magic. You know, I always just had fun playing limited, and since you couldn't always play limited, you would have to make some sort of constructed deck to play with other people. So I always made some sort of random brews, and I was like, well, in Hearthstone, these random brews just aren't cutting it, right? So how about I try like a top tier deck? I picked up a deck called Patron Warrior, and I went almost like. I believe it was over like 80% win rate all the way up to all the way up to a legend. <laughs> so I actually got up there and I and I got it with a tiered deck. And soon after that, I had been, you know, it, it was very consistent. Every month I would get I would get that rank in relatively short amount of games. So I was like, you know what? I'm pretty good. Um coincidentally, I was in a I was in a Hearthstone group, a Hearthstone UK group or something on Facebook. And uh, there was a post there that they were looking for players to join the professional team. And I was like, oh my goodness, what is this? Right? Am I good enough? You know, there's not that much downside to applying. Maybe I'll see what happens, right? Because again, at this point, I had no idea how good I was. So I was like, you know, I kind of want to see how, if I was shot at making this team. So I applied to the team and they were like, oh yeah, well, okay, well, right now we're seeing just how, just, just how good the applicants are. There is this online tournament here, and uh, so join it and see and see how you do. So I joined these online tournaments. Out of like 200-something people, I ended up getting like top four twice, right? So I got top four tw- two times, and I was like, whoa, this is the first time I've ever played like a, like a Hearthstone tournament or something. That was pretty cool. 
And so the team was like, well, hey, this guy's actually pretty good. So they signed me on. And I don't remember, I don't even remember if there was a contract or anything. I don't think there was, right? I don't think there, uh, maybe there was actually, yes. There actually was a contract. Because I remember that uh, I had to give up, I, I believe it was like 50% of my earnings or something like that uh, to the team. <laughs> which was very unlikely that I was going to win anything, right? Yeah. Anyways, but so this team took me on. There was an event called Insomnia, which is a LAN tournament in uh, Birmingham, England, just about a week away. And I was like, hey, uh, can I go to this tournament? Because there was a open, like basically a tournament where anybody can join, right? They are at the event. And so they were like, yeah, I mean, if you want to go to it, we'll see what we can do. You know, they sent me a jersey and they paid for half of the entry fee, right? Like not like no no accommodation or anything. They paid for half of the entry fee. And at this point I was like, "Oh my goodness. That is amazing. I can't believe that they would pay for that much." You know what I mean? Yeah, this is real, right? This is some real stuff. We got real budget. Yeah, like this is a real stuff and uh, oh my goodness, I get to go compete in a game and potentially win money. Like people are paying me for to 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 go compete. And obviously, this is my very first esports experience, right? And it doesn't seem like much these days. I mean, it's not. <laughs> but um, back then, I was like, wow, I'm sponsored. I can't believe it. I'm like a professional player now kind of thing. And so I went there, and uh, I didn't do too well in the main event. But in the secondary event, there was like another $5,000 tournament or something inside. And then I ended up top eighting that one. And uh, that was kind of my first esports experience. It was there where I met... Actually, it was a soon-to-be one of my good friends, and his name's Aquablod or Nick Seckler. He was a he was a HTT commentator, so a commentator for Hearthstone at the highest level. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Hey, I like the way that you think about the game, and I really uh, need some help with commentating currently because I because because he was commentating these these uh, weekly tournaments, but he didn't have a co-commentator. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Hey, if you want, you can come on." Um, and I'd really appreciate that if you just did some commentating with me. So we did commentating together for, I think, a few months. It was about three. It was about three days a week. So, some days would be like four hours. Some days would be like six hours. You know, just commentating the basically the top eight of of like these open Magic the uh, sorry open Hearthstone cups. Was it hard to become a commentator? Like, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so at that time, that was basically me gaining experience in commentating, right? Because in the industry, nobody's going to hire you just because, well, you want to commentate, right? So at the time, I, I actually racked up a lot of experience commentating in Hearthstone. And from that, I actually had things to show people. I was like, hey, well, I commentate on these things. Do you, do you guys need a commentator? With the help of Aquablod and also with the help of Raven, so Raven, he's currently one of the top Hearthstone commentators now. He's He's been so for the entirety of Hearthstone, basically. Uh, there was this ESL event, right? So this ESL, ESL tournament where they needed another commentator. What does ESL stand for? ESL is like uh, Electronic Sports League. They have a studio and everything. You know, ESL does a lot of the really, really big events. There's ESL UK. There's ESL uh, US and... Anyways, the, overall, they're an extremely big entity. So ESL needed a commentator last minute for Hearthstone. So uh, they call. So Raven recommended me, and I believe through somewhere else they found my good friend Falcone. Right. So Daniel Falcone. He right now he does a lot of Hearthstone 
commentating and stuff like that. He hosts a lot of events. I believe that right now he's hosting. He was hosting the Hearthstone Twitch Rivals event. Mm, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, and he was doing Methods uh, World First run for World of Warcraft. He's really doing well for himself. Really doing a lot. But that was our first cast together. That was actually our first cast. That was our first paid gig, and uh, that was a lot of fun. So that paid gig, it was our first experience into like true esports, true esports commentating. And actually, that tournament was really, really bad for us. Oh, why was that? Yeah, so it was really bad because the Twitch chat really, really hated us. So long story short, the Twitch chat hated our commentating. <laughs> so Twitch chat was like probably the worst I've ever seen Twitch chat. I mean, was it was it partially warranted or was it like planted? Like they just wanted to give you guys a hard time. Yeah, so I don't want to get into it too much, but uh, for a large portion of it, it was quite planted. Back then, a lot of the British... I guess Hearthstone players really disliked us. And I think that came from that came from the feeling that, well, there were other people who they felt deserved that mm. spot as a commentator more than we did. That's a bad thought. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand. It's like you're taking away from opportunities or some crazy. Yeah, thing. exactly. Like, why did we get the job when there are plenty of other people who are waiting for their opportunity? They're turned in line. But they didn't get the opportunity, right? And it, maybe we were bad. I mean, that was like a very early time for us to be commentating as well. That that was like when we were still not very good. It was definitely an experience. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a kind one to us, I think. But it that was still our first step into esports, mm -hmm. into real esports commentating. But uh, good news is that after that event. My now good friend, who was a scout for Jinx Esports TV, which is a esports TV channel in the UK, it's based right in London. He was watching that as well, right? But he didn't have the chat up, and he was like, "Man, this Desi guy, his energy is through the roof, and I want him <laughs> on our show." Yep. Right. Yep. So he actually got me on the on a Jinx TV for one of these shows as an analyst. For like Hearthstone. So basically I was explaining some meta decks, right? Mm -hmm. Hearthstone. So at the same time that people were hating on us for, you know, just being bad and not and not really deserving that spot as a commentator, I also got the biggest gig at the time um, being able to do TV work for an esports station. Later on, that led to me being they liked me so much on that TV show segment that first of all, they used that clip for part of their sponsor video, right? Like uh, pitching the channel to sponsors. So they used like my segment. Basically, it was a highlight of the of their whole production. It turned out to be, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then secondly, they liked me so much on there that they invited me to be a main time uh, host, to be one of the main full-time hosts on their next flagship TV show, which is Jinx TV's The Bridge. That was basically like a live television talk show where we had a lot of relevant people you know, whether it's like a super smash brothers player like hungry box or something or you would have a shocks or uh or like or like a kenny from um, counter-strike we basically had all of the biggest celebrities on our channel it was talking about you know their craft and talking about their game and stuff like that so i did that close to i believe 200 out 200 live hours on television for about over a year. That ended up being one of the biggest gigs for me. Walk me through what happens after that. 
Yeah, so at this time, I am actually full-time studying as well in my master's degree. Right. Let's not forget that. I mean, that's that's not insignificant. This is like, it sounds like it's a full-time thing, but it's really like you have two full-time things, right? Exactly. So moving down to London, I started the full-time gig at Jinxie Sports TV, and uh, that was a very memorable experience for me. I worked with a lot of very, very talented people, people who are way more talented than I'll ever be. Hopefully one day I'm like a tenth as talented as them. So as some of my good friends, uh, Frankie Ward, she does like the main commentating for uh, Counter-Strike events and stuff like that, and a bunch of others as well. Moving down to London, I started doing that full time. Also on the side, I was also picking up random commentating work as well for Hearthstone tournaments. And the only way that I could actually do everything at the same time to juggle everything was that the way that I approached university, as as terrible as it sounds, I actually put all of my classes onto two days. So Tuesday and Thursday would be all of my classes and they would all be back to back. So two days, right, I would be at, at university. And then that basically leaves me a five-day weekend, right? So I basically have a five-day weekend to travel around and to do other stuff. Uh, most days, it was like I go to university, I come home, wash up, and then I head right out to the a studio for the show. And then on the weekends, it would be like if I'm not doing the show, I would have some sort of commentating, some sort of commentating gig. And uh, I would take a train or fly out to wherever in Europe it was. Uh, do the thing, come back, and be ready for my class on Tuesday. So throughout the entire time, I I had only missed one lecture, and that one lecture was because I was sick. So it wasn't even because of like esports stuff. So I was really good at just balancing everything. Sounds like you're good at just being super organized. Yeah, it's it's kind of the same way that I look at drafting in Magic the Gathering. It's just about allocating resources and trying to risk assess trying to maximize your opportunities, right? Like creating your own luck somewhat. Yeah. And then at that time as well, near the end of my degree, I had actually gotten a good sponsorship to play Hearthstone competitively. So through, throughout that entire time, in addition to the host TV hosting, to the tournament commentating, to my university, I was also playing professional Hearthstone as well. So I would travel to like a lot of events I've been to DreamHack Sweden, I believe, uh, five times now. Mm-hmm. I believe it was, it was three times for DreamHack Winter and twice for DreamHack Summer. So uh, I, I traveled around a lot for Hearthstone tournaments as well. And the only reason, again, I could do that is was because I organized my time well. So that was a lot of work. I really didn't sleep much. <laughs> I tried to also squeeze in a few Hearthstone streams here and there as well when possible. So I was doing a lot of stuff, and it was... Really, really tiring, but also it was very, very rewarding as well. Yeah. What a time to be alive, right? You just It just yeah. feels like you're squeezing in the lives of two or three people into one life. Yep, exactly. And I don't know if that was just because moving away from Northeast England, I was just like, man, I need a fast life. And I just went you know, all the way. <laughs> I got to make up for all those all that time that I was just like, you know, doing one thing a day or something. Yep, exactly. That's great. And so it sounds like esports and hearthstone specifically has been really good to you yeah so esports and hearthstone these days almost all of my friends are from esports outside of esports i just have like a like a handful of friends that i like who i still talk to but for the most part i like i know a lot of people 
but I don't talk to a lot of people, you know. Mm-hmm. But most of the people I talk to are in esports now. It's just weird. I I guess this is part of growing up, right? Where like oftentimes if you don't go to school or if you don't have church or whatever, it's hard to find friends outside of just work. So in esports, it's basically the same way. Most of my friends, most most of my good friends I met because every month we were traveling to the same Hearthstone tournaments, right? Like all around the world. We were at the same Hearthstone tournaments. We were traveling to the same places. We uh, worked together in the TV studio kind of thing. And uh, it was really hard building up relationships, honestly, like very personal relationships just because everyone is so busy, including myself, that in this world everyone's working so hard because it's so competitive that uh, it's really hard to just take a moment off to uh, spend time with your friends and stuff, right? Because everybody's busy. You just can't catch anybody. What What's that world like? Because I personally have been really only involved in the world of Magic the Gathering, but how would you describe that world? I mean, was it like super political? Was it like all friend, all friendships and all heart-shaped emojis? Was it like very transactional? Like how would you describe your slice of the world from what you were living through? Okay, so in this world, it's a lot of people who have made it, people who are kind of making it, people who are trying to make it, right? The majority of the field is people who are trying to make it. And it's one of the most awkward things but you learn very quickly that most people can tell if you're, you know, talking to them because you want something. And I think that's one of the most dangerous things in that field because everybody, even people who get like very huge opportunities and stuff, like you get really big gigs, at the end of the day, you need to put in the work yourself. And I think that's a big part about streaming as well, that people, whether it's streaming or working in esports, that people have a misconception about. They're like, oh, well, streaming, all you need is a big host or a shout-out from from a big streamer, right? And then you've made it. Or you just need this one big gig, somebody to give you a chance. And yes, like, all of that is part of it. But at the end of the day, it's very important, like, the hard work that you put in yourself and the hard work that other people can see you putting in as well. One of the best things when it comes to relationships in this world is when people can see that you not only work hard, but that you're just talking to them as just a normal person. There are so many people who are trying to find and get something out of you that it means a lot when people are just just people and seeing you as a person. That's one of the biggest things that I've taken away from esports. Was it tempting to kind of lose yourself in that sort of alternative mindset that a lot of people try to do? The alternative mindset as as in... As in, it's more transactional. I want to like fake it or I want to, you know, how do I shortcut my way to making it or or having certain achievements without necessarily putting in 10,000 hours of work? I think this is a part of my personality where a lot of times I just don't feel like I'm good enough, right? And I, and, and I honestly don't really think that I'm good enough in a lot of these things I've done, right? A lot of times I feel like people are helping me out more than I'm helping them, if that makes sense. Right. Where like if somebody's a good stage host, then it feels like, oh, we're so lucky to have them on, you know, to to uh, to uh, host our tournament. So I always felt like it was the other way around. So I always had to work harder and harder so that nothing was quite good enough for me. I guess that kind of gave me a sense of just, well, I don't really ask for things that I don't feel like that I deserve, if that makes sense. And in this world, it's kind of 
it's kind of weird as annoying as it is asking for things, right? And a lot of times people are going to get annoyed at you for asking things as well. But if you don't ask, you don't get. So you need to go out there. You need to actually ask for stuff. But also at the same time, you need to be putting in the work yourself as well. So it's not simply about just, oh, yeah, asking people if you can do something. It's also putting in the work, and which is uh, anyone who's successful in esports right now, whether it's streaming, whether it's hosting, commentating, playing professionally, people have asked. You know what I mean? You've asked, and, and you've also worked. It's a combination of both, not one or the other. I think it's often alluring or dangerous to just sit back because maybe you feel like you are, I'm not saying you specifically, but one can feel like one is owed something. And that's often a dangerous mindset to adopt. It's like I did events A and B and they had like X million viewers. So it's like, give me something now. And and that's that's that can be dangerous if you if you sit back on that and you don't, I mean, I'm not even talking about esports, but just life in general, like that can that can be dangerous. It really is. Um, the kind of people in esports that you'll see are people who are very, very good at what they do in addition to being passionate about something. But they would also be people who would be good at basically anything that they do. And that's a lot of the people I've met in esports who are very, very good, but who actually make a lot less money, at least in the beginning, right? Doing esports and stuff like that just because they are passionate about it. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, well, I, I would rather make a third of what I should be making, but I'm working in an industry I love and there's a lot of opportunity here, a lot of growth. Yeah. Or you look at magic players. Like I always like to talk about the opportunity cost of magic because let's be real here. Like if all the best magic players in the world went and did something else, we probably have world peace or something (laughs) like some breakthrough in science by now, because there are so many like great minds working on getting better at this game, but it's always at the expense of something else. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like if Ben Stark was a doctor, do you know how many lives would be saved? <laughs> like thousands, right? Yeah, I mean, talk about a brilliant mind who just is so dedicated on to something. It's just, it's just amazing. He he's just so straight up. To me, he's like an OG of of magic, but he's also just super straight up and honest about so many things. And that's kind of why. That's probably why like someone gets better at something is because they're willing to. That's the paradox. It's like you have to feel like you're not adequate enough to actually become great you know mm-hmm. i mean it's very important like i think that sort of honesty whether it's in your personal life or even in the things you do i think it's very what's the word where you're like freed from something it's um it's very liber- liberating liberating yes yes it's so it's a very so for me it's a very liberating way to live where when you're very honest about the things whether it's your successes or your failures it's very very uh, good because the thing is that you don't have any of the excess fat around your your thoughts, right? So being very honest about things, whether it's in uh, your skill level and limited, your mistakes, or in partially just like being realistic and um, understanding like what has to happen for you to improve, right? I, I think all of that is very important, and that's kind of the way that I try to live my life as well. If you love someone, you know, tell them that you love them. If there's something you want to do, figure out how you can do that while taking care of everything else as well. You know, just very straightforward. And that's a that's the kind of people I like. And that's a philosophy that I like in strategy games. I like that. I'm going to piggyback on this now. I'm going to be real straightforward with you. How did you go from Hearthstone to Magic? Like, tell me about the circumstances in which that happened. Yep. So, again, I did start with Magic the Gathering. 
So I guess let's go to start with this. In Magic the Gathering, Magic the Gathering is a game where I always thought it was kind of a loser's game. You know what I mean? Where it was like growing up when I was in elementary school, middle school, I used to play all kinds of card games. I used to play Pokemon. I used to, or or I, I guess the more accurate way of saying it is that I didn't play them, but I watched the TV shows and I collected the cards. Okay, like we Pokemon, didn't actually Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, all that kind of stuff, right? Yep, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, Digimon. Um, we played all of these games and collected all of the cards. But the thing is, for me, Magic the Gathering, it was in it was in the same category. But the thing is that the cards look so ugly, right? They're so <laughs> ugly. Like they have this old looking card back. It looks like it. It looks like something that would have like slid out of the Jumanji box, you know, when you uncovered it from. Yeah. Uh, from like the rubble uh-huh. and i was like man this is such a nerdy game with all these vampires and angels and stuff that's not a game for me you know mm-hmm. what i mean that's mm-hmm. basically dungeons and dragons which i recently learned that wizards of the coast did create dungeons and dragons but uh, yeah i was like that's this is not for me i like the very beautiful aesthetic of cards i like the interesting like flashy characters you know so for a large portion of my life, I was just like, well, this is the nerdiest thing and I'm not and I'm not ever going to touch it. OK. And so it was once again, my brothers, I always explained this to people that my brothers would be the best drug dealers, right, because they would get you hooked <laughs> on something and uh, they and they could just walk away from it, you know, while you're there spending your entire life on it. And so my brothers were like, hey, we're playing some Magic the Gathering. Do you, do, do you want to come play with us? And this is after I had moved back to Texas, moved back to Houston after my um, after my one year in Southern California, finish finishing my high school. So I moved back home after that, and uh, and I had nothing to do. And my brother, hey, you want to play? And I was like, Ugh, I guess, I guess I'll play a little bit. Well, one thing led to another. I I think I stayed there for like forty hours, just building decks out of the random cards, you know, um, the random cards in yeah. the room. And I got so addicted to Magic the Gathering. I was so addicted. I was trying at building a, a bunch of decks and stuff. I was like, oh, man, Bone Splinters. Bone Splinters is a card that it's got to be so broken because I can sacrifice my opponent's creatures and stuff. <laughs> Obviously, I was still learning the rules. Right. That card evaluation, that initial point of exploration, curiosity, that is something, again, that I find to be the most exhilarating thing in the world. In this day and age where maybe the entire earth has already been dis- has already been conquered, right? Uh, every last point of the earth can be seen on Google Maps or whatever. What what is there left to discover? And a lot of it is like, well, these games that nobody's discovered yet because, well, they're coming out. It's new to everybody. It's almost like a new planet is being is being introduced every single time and we get to explore it. And for me, that's kind of the interesting part, the appealing part about gaming, that initial curiosity phase exploration period. So that's a very fond memory of mine. And that's how I got started in Magic the Gathering, you know, and then I started going out to game stores and stuff, my brothers. I remember going out to Return to Ravnica pre-release with with my brother Danny. And um and like there were a lot of seasoned players there, right? You know, those old guys who were like, oh, I've been playing Magic the Gathering since uh, since uh, the dawn of Earth kind of thing. Yeah. And we were playing there, and and it's like, okay, well, we just won the two at a giant tournament. You know, came home with like three boxes or whatever. And then I was going out to other tournaments. I was 
I was playing a lot. And by a lot these days, back then, it was like drafting maybe twice a week. Uh, sorry, uh, maybe drafting twice a month, right? That th- that was considered a lot of magic mm-hmm. because, well, it takes a lot to actually get a lot of people together to draft. So I was playing, quote unquote, a lot back then, mm-hmm. uh, going to, you know, over like the course of the next year, I was going to tournaments and stuff like, uh, sorry, like the, like the pre-releases. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pre-release. And the pre-releases I, I used to go to at DNA Comics was, it was like the hardcore events where it was like, it was not like, oh, every win you get one pack, right? It was like, if you got first, you got like three or four boxes. You know what I mean? Oh, it's like super, super top heavy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's super top heavy, very competitive, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a bunch of these events where where I was where I was either winning them or I was... Or, or, or getting into the final match, being a finalist and splitting with my opponent or whatever, right? Yeah. So uh, that was that was kind of just my Magic the Gathering. So this was a this is like a tough, tough environment. Like it's all ringers, basically. Yep. Exactly, and you know, like that's the kind of place where people cheat as well. Like people try to like scum you out of stuff. Oh, it was man. really what I called street magic. You know, yeah. like street magic where uh, you basically play for keeps and loser loses their fingers and their best card. <laughs> You know, <laughs> oh man! I mean, but that that does make you better as a player, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I still have all five or all five fingers in each hand. Yeah. Yeah. So you you do that in high school. That was the paper magic, and then Hearthstone kind of captivates you and becomes part of your career. And then what happens to make you go back to magic? So during Hearthstone, for the most part, most of the frustrations from Hearthstone came from last year. So last year, you know, all Hearthstone players can kind of attest to this, where, like, the game is getting, like, worse and worse, more boring and more boring. Or are we talking about the nerfs or something else? So uh, talking about not only the card expansions, so Hearthstone moved into... So Hearthstone basically tried to to mimic Magic the Gathering in terms of standard rotation. Mm -hmm. So instead of having only an Eternal format, which is basically what Yu-Gi-Oh! is, right? Yu-Gi-Oh! You can basically play with all the cards that aren't banned. And that was Hearthstone for a long time. But Hearthstone wanted to move, wanted to have a standard rotation, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's way Magic the Gathering does it, and that's way that we've always done in Magic. Basically, what I feel, and a lot of other pros as well, is that Hearthstone did not deal with the rotation system well. So like a lot of sets were super uh, powerful. Some of their sets were so bad that maybe only five cards out of like the 130 or whatever were even played. That, in addition to Blizzard, I guess caring less and less about their about the professional Hearthstone scene. I mean, you've seen what what Blizzard have Blizzard has done to not only their employees but also to like Heroes of the Storm. They basically just killed the. Let's just say they have they have some challenges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, they have some challenges, and most of the time it seems like they're just trying to shoot themselves in the foot. You know, uh, sometimes their aims off and it survives a little bit longer, but <laughs> still living. Yeah. It was a really, really weird situation. Anyways, a lot of the pro players and myself as well, we felt so invested into Hearthstone. It's a game that we've played more than any other. I believe, I think I've probably played like over twenty thousand games of Hearthstone. You know, and that's and 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 that's not a lot compared to a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. That that is not a lot. We were so invested in it emotionally, career wise, mentally as well. You know, we invested a lot of skill and a lot of practice into this game over the years. And it was really hard to let it go, mm-hmm. right? And if you consider that, 
in addition to me being a stubborn person, you know, always just trying to YOLO and if I haven't quite made it yet, then I'm going to just keep on trying, you know, like I'm not very good at giving up. Last year was a point in time when I actually moved back to the United States. This was after I finished my degree. Um, I, I moved back to the United States and I had an opportunity to to go 100% full-time Hearthstone with, with a sponsorship. So I took that sponsorship deal and I played Hearthstone full-time. Uh, I was traveling all over every month. I was playing probably like 250 hours a month of, of Hearthstone. It was really emotional. It was it was difficult because during that time there were these there were these team events. So basically, you and your teammates, all 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 of your points together, your basically pro points together, uh, added up, and then you were uh, in contention playing against other teams, right? And it was just the most upsetting thing. Now I was playing no longer just for myself, but I was playing also for my teammates as well. There was a lot of pressure on that. Mm-hmm. And time and time again, I always fell short. A lot of my friends who I practice with, they are some of the best in the game right now. They're like basically in the MPL equivalent of of Hearthstone. These are players who thought very, very highly of me, right? They're always like, man, you're so good. And, and, and I was always helping them with lineups and stuff. We were good friends. We were always just playing and uh, in, in Discord together, you know. And even though all of my peers thought I was really good, I kept on falling short. You know, I kept on falling short in tournaments. I just couldn't make it. I just, like, things just didn't line up properly. And, you know, that causes me to get tilted and then frustrated. And it was all very emotional. It could be very instill, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it feel like, Hearthstone is so skill-based, but there's still just so much variance in it. It was very frustrating just just losing like flips over and over again at at the crucial moments in the crucial tournaments. There was one tournament that my teammates and I were in. It was it, it was was it Dreamhack Austin, uh, I believe last year. So almost almost an entire year ago. Yeah, really big event. Yeah, like it was a really big uh, Hearthstone tournament, and we were there. And uh, I had been playing on the ladder the night before the tournament because for whatever reason the the uh, end of the season coincided with this tournament, right? So uh, I was playing the end of the tournament, and I I basically just had to win one game, like, multiple times in order to get my ladder finish so that I can get the points. But I kept on falling short. Like I kept on losing, like, unlosable games, basically. Mm-hmm. It was it was so frustrating. So long story short, in the end, I, I I did not get my finish on two accounts. So I played two different accounts, and I didn't get a finish on either of those. So I didn't get my points. And so I was so tired, I actually crashed at their uh, hotel room. And when I woke up in the morning, I didn't even know. But I woke up in the morning, and I looked in the mirror, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Why are my eyes bloodshot red? And this happens pretty normally to me, right? And I was like... Why? Why are my eyes bloodshot? Bloodshot red again? It's it's so weird. Maybe it's like, maybe it's the hotel couch or something that I'm just allergic to something in the detergent. Uh, later on, in the middle in in the middle of a tournament, we're we're just sitting around waiting for our results, and they're like, "Hey, Desi, are you okay? Because last night you were crying throughout the entire night and making sounds like you were dying. We we're so worried." Oh. 
you didn't recognize that. I mean, you were doing it maybe unconsciously or as you were resting, right? Yeah, exactly. So now that I think back, like every single morning when I woke up with like bloodshot eyes, it was just because I was crying all night. You know what I mean? I was sleeping, but I had no idea that I was like, you know, upset while I was sleeping. It was just very, very sad, you know? So that, so that was a very emotional time for me. I guess the peak of it was when I was coming back from DreamHack summer. So this was 2018. Yeah, so this was 2018, just last year. Again, all of the built-up stress from Hearthstone, from letting down my teammates, from uh, just from my friends thinking that I was good at the game, and and me also thinking that I'm good at the game, just failing time and time again. On my return flight home on one of the connections, I on the plane, I actually had an asthma attack, right? And I at the time, I had no idea what it was. Because, well, I hadn't, I, even back when I was younger, I never really had severe asthma attacks, even when I was diagnosed with asthma. So I, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't breathe. I don't know what's going on. Uh, it feels like I'm like breathing through half of a straw, you know, half of a coffee straw. And I was like, man, what in the world is going on here? And at that point, I honestly thought that that was just my time. I was just like, okay, well, I- you, you really thought you were dying, right? Yeah, I actually thought that I was going to die, yeah. I actually thought that I was going to die. So I was like, oh my goodness, what is this? And uh, so I got hospitalized. I got hospitalized, right? It turns out that I just needed some albuterol. So like that's like what in, that's what's in inhalers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so I, I got hospitalized. And at the point, I, I, I seriously thought I was going to die. It was like on the plane, I was having an asthma attack and then uh, when the plane landed, you know, the emergency team came and then they gave me albuterol and everything. And they're like, and then, and then I was fine. Right. And I went back home. So my, so my dad had picked me up, went back home and, uh, I thought everything was fine. Right. And then I tried to go to sleep and then I had another asthma attack right there on my bed. So the room I'm in is actually on the top floor of my parents' house. So it's like a three story house. And then I'm just sleeping in the, and I basically just live and stream in the attic. I've I've made this my studio. And so I had an asthma attack and I was trying to call my parents, but my parents were working. So obviously they just didn't have their phone on. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, man, I survived the plane, but I but I'm actually just going to die here in my bed. And it was really stressful. And at the time I was like, oh, man, I at the time I hadn't been making a lot of money either. So I was like pretty poor. At the time, and I was like, "Oh man, can I even afford to like call 911 and stuff?" Eventually, my mom called me back, and then and then we called 911, and then I got hospitalized there. But um, that was a really really rough year for me. So like, I tried to go as hard as possible into full time Hearthstone just because I was just so upset from not having accomplished anything in the Hearthstone world, right? Not only that, but letting my teammates down as well. Um, I was like, you know what? I just want to. Keep on going until I make it, basically. But uh, eventually, you know, after that, I was like, well, it's about time for me to give it up. And yeah, and that was basically when I stopped playing Hearthstone for both uh, physical and emotional reasons. Well, I mean, it sounded like it was just causing you so much stress and it, it started to manifest physically. So that's just not a good place to be, right? Yeah, it, it was really hard as well. During that time, I was... I was also uh, basically in like a relationship with with a girl, and um, 
she was one of my childhood friends kind of thing. Like we had known each other for probably like, like seven or eight years. And we actually met in an MMO we used to play called Dragon Nest. So basically at this time, so she lived in Southern California and I would just visit her whenever I was visiting my, my grandmother. Like my grandmother's pretty sick in, uh, and she lives in Southern California. And at this at this point in my life, like the only silver lining there was, you know, out, like through the Hearthstone and everything else was basically just her emotional support. After giving up Hearthstone, I was like, or, or or part of the decision to me giving up Hearthstone was like, was just thinking about, oh man, well, this is not only like cutting into my life, but also, you know, I'm not like really making any money off of this. I haven't been winning or anything. And it's causing a lot of pressure on like my relationships with with her and the and the people around me as well. So I basically left it behind for better, for worse, probably for better. And I started looking for full-time jobs in esports marketing, basically. So part of what I used to do as well, uh, part-time was using my sociology degree, I would I would create market reports. It would be consulting, right, for both endemic and non-endemic esports entities. So there's a lot of companies out there who want to get into esports, who want to start marketing to esports, but they don't know, know anything about it, right? So they need someone who's an insider and who can provide them like tangible research and also a strategy that fits with their brand and, and their demographic, right? Trying to figure out what that demographic yeah, is. Yeah, it's like, you know, back in the day you had like game FAQs and you had the strategy guides. It's like strategy guides for companies that want to break in, right? Yeah, exactly. I had a lot of offers that were like part-time jobs, but I was looking for something that was like a full-time job that I could actually just devote myself to, right? Invest my time into that and lose myself in something again, rather than just always doing preliminary work for different companies, uh, which is kind of repetitive in a way, but also you never really get to see the company grow and you never get to grow together with the company. You know what I mean? So... I was looking for some sort of full-time work. Time and time again, like I would be it, it would be basically at the end of the negotiations and like things were looking good and then you know something happens or something would fall apart. Uh, I was also working on a lot of projects together with esports crypto platforms, you know, like back last year there were a lot of there's a lot of hype on like blockchain technology and on esports, you know. So I was working on a lot of that. Obviously, one day all of that just vanished. You know, the the hype was gone as quickly as it started, and uh, basically nothing was working out for me. Also, not too long after that, so the girl I was in a relationship with, for whatever reason, I I assume that part of it has to do with just you know just me trying to find my footing and just being like pretty emotional and stuff like that. Out of the blue, one day she just stopped talking to me. So she just started ghosting me, basically. And it wasn't until maybe half a year after that that she even had any sort of update on social media or anything. At at that point, I honestly thought that she was dead or something happened to her, and I and that just added to my stress as well, right? I was like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And at this point, I was in a really really bad spot. Harson didn't work out, you know. Like the girl that I, you know, that I was thinking about, even some sort of like long future with you know like that that didn't work out either and then none of these jobs or these companies that i'm working on were working out so it was 
it felt like I was at a dead end, right? And at this point, I was so ready to just give up on the esports world as well. I was like, even though all of my expertise and knowledge is in esports, I think it might be time for me to just leave and just get like a normal job. You know what I mean? Just get like a normal uh, marketing job. There's a lot more of those uh, than you know than ones that are esports focused. Yeah. So that's so that's kind of the digression, I guess, uh, my my slow descent into insanity. No, I mean, I appreciate you you sharing all that because it's I'm I'm listening here and I just feel like we've all kind of had those moments in life where we really struggle and we're just barely trying to hold on. Like everyone has a different threshold, but I don't even know if like my words can relate to you like how like I'm really feeling what you're feeling right now like this this is this is not easy like it felt like it just feels like a lot of things were just crashing at the same time everything it definitely felt like this like the ship was just slowly sinking you know you see the water slowly filling up and you know that sooner or later this ship is going to uh to a capsize and it was Honestly, I can't believe that that was only last year, right? That was only last year. I guess fast forward a little bit to Dream Hat, sorry, to TwitchCon. So going to TwitchCon, I had another. So one of my friends wanted to introduce me to her friend, who owns an esports organization in Europe, right? And I'm not going to mention what esports organization it is, but and she was like yeah so they're so they're looking for someone who can come up with ideas and to basically uh, help them with marketing in terms of how how to differentiate their company from others in this competitive world of esports and i was like well that's kind of my specialty right that's a lot of that's a lot of what i specialize in and that's something that i can do so i made the trip out to twitchcon you know i met with them and everything was fine we had great talks or whatever but the biggest thing to take away from that trip was meeting my friend Balance again. So my friend who was the uh, scout for Jinx Esports TV, who got me into Jinx Esports TV after watching my commentating. So I was staying together with him in San Jose for TwitchCon. And he was like, hmm, I don't understand why your stream isn't popping off. Like, uh, you're a great streamer and... Uh, and like the content you provide is very high quality. You know what you should try doing? You should try just streaming every single day at the same time. Don't miss a day. Don't be late. And see what happens. It was uh, not too long after that that I got home and I was like, hmm. Well, you know, nothing else is working at the moment. <laughs> and I have no idea what the hell I'm going to be doing in my life. Okay, I guess this is going to be my last shot, right? My absolute last shot in esports. If it fails, there's no redos, no one more times, you know. It's that that's just going to be it. I'm going to leave esports and probably even gaming behind, and I'm just going to be focusing on building up a career in something else. Cue the Eminem 8 Mile music, like this is my last shot, like I'm going <laughs> to This is like all or nothing, right? All or nothing, all in. Yeah, exactly. All in here. You know, I took that crazy idea and I was like, there's no way this works. Like consistency is not that important, right? Like more important than consistency is how good you are and how entertaining you are, right? Because even if you're not consistent, if you're entertaining, people are still going to watch. 
that was kind of my perspective at the time, right? And then obviously as a streamer, you're always like, oh, well, there's always an element of luck to it. If you're not lucky, then you're not going to be able to make it. So a lot of the variables, I always attributed it to something that was outside of my control, right? And I was like, okay, well, there's no way that this one simple trick is going to do anything. <laughs> It's like a it's like a clickbait article, yeah. One simple trick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one simple trick. So I started streaming at the same time, every single day, not missing a single day, and streaming for pretty long hours. Uh, little by little, channel started to grow, started to pick up, and you know, one thing led to another, one thing led to another, and uh, yeah, we are here today with with a stream that I'm actually able to make a living off of. So. Hey, I'm super proud of you, man. I mean, I'm not your parent, but like, I'm super happy and proud for you because like, I know the work that you put in. I know I'm not a streamer, but I'm a content creator. And I can tell you, you talk to a hundred content creators, 99% of them will tell you consistency, right? Like you gotta, mm -hmm. everyone has a great idea, but can you show up every day at the same time and just freaking do it? Like that's what separates the people who are great from people who are just kind of like, one hit wonders and, and just they have the best idea in the world, but they don't execute on it. So I see that because whenever I jumped in your stream, mm -hmm. every time I go in there, like you're doing something entertaining, you're consistent, you show up, you're interacting with your fans, your viewers, you're providing like solid gameplay. Like I'm learning a lot, a lot about limited just by watching you. So you're actually doing it right. And I think that that separates you from 99% of other streamers I see, like you're actually putting in the time and the work. Yeah, and again, it's like not only viewers like you, but also, of course, um, a, a lot of the other content creators. I personally don't think that I could have gotten there without them. It, maybe, maybe I would have had to like work twice as hard or something without, without, without the endorsements from like Ben Stark and 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 my friend Show and uh, like Muffin Pastry Pie. You know, like wh whenever I'm in her stream, she's like. She's like, oh hey, check out the streamer Desi. He's uh he's super good at limited content, and uh, he's gonna be big soon. And I'm like, what the heck? You know, it means a lot when people endorse your stream. And you know, Ben Stark was like, yeah, I don't understand. I don't know who this Desi is, who this Desi guy is. Everybody keeps on asking me about him, but uh, I watched the stream and his content's fire. You know what I mean? Like, I I'm a huge fan, and I'm like, that is something that I don't think I deserve because again, I'm like, well. I don't think that I'm as good as good as them as streaming, and my stream's always been very small, and I've never really found success in like streaming and gaming, you know what I mean? So I'm like, no, 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 there's there's no way I deserve that kind of thing. And still, honestly, to this day, I really just don't think that I would be here right now. Not that I'm like the world's biggest streamer or anything, but I don't think that I would be here now if it wasn't for their support. So that's just something that I don't think I can ever forget, and if I do forget, somebody should punish me for it. So. I mean, going back to a bit of what you said earlier, you did say that, you know, there's a misconception that if you just get featured once, that just makes your career. Because it's not like that. To use a rap analogy, I can think of plenty of artists featured as a verse on some hit song, but they never actually ended up carrying that forward. That helps you, but you also have to put yourself in a position to just grind day in and day out. To be honest, I saw you for the first time when you did the video with Ben Stark. But then I went and checked out your stream. I'm like, man, this guy's actually pretty good. Like he was featured for a reason and he continues to, to bring it, you know? So it's not just a one-time thing. You have to take advantage of your opportunities, but you also just put in the work. You know what I mean? 
Yep, exactly, exactly. So for me, I think that collaborations in esports, it's it, and especially streaming wise, I personally think it's maybe like at maximum five percent of you know of like the reasons for your stream to to get bigger and to be more popular and for people want to watch. At the end of the day, I think that it's very important for you to create content that you would watch yourself. If you don't want to watch it, then why would anyone else watch it? Kind of thing. It's been a really wild ride, honestly. Um, it's been about six months now, almost. Uh, sorry, five months now. I believe it just hit the five months mark since uh, since I since I got partnered on Twitch, and also that was around the time when I joined Temple Storm as well. Part of that was because of uh, my of my friend Glenn, who is now a superior of mine on Temple Storm. He's the one who who does most of the content stuff, love the content direction stuff and publishing for Temple Storm. He went on a limb and he he really recommended me to Temple Storm to get picked up, and so that was a big landmark in my streaming career as well. Being able to finally be on like a really good team with really good support and people like people like Glenn who uh, support me from the shadows. I mean, since then, just been just streaming, you know, uh, the channel's been has been pretty consistent in terms of viewership, in terms of subscriptions and stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, these days, one of the hardest things for me is just to try to not take my stream for granted, I guess, like all the success, you know, it's pretty normal now or just turning on stream every single day and having people, you know, they're waiting and coming to hang out and stuff. I sometimes I really do take that for granted. You know, that's just like a very normal thing now, even though not too long ago it was like, well, I'm going to leave esports. I guess like these days, even though we've quote unquote made it, at least in terms of a uh, magic, the gathering streaming, it's just, uh, I don't know. There's always problems, I suppose. You know, there's always trouble in paradise, and take, taking my stream for granted is definitely one of those. So I know we spent a lot of time in this interview just sort of going through the past up to where you are now, but let's take a second to look forward. What are some things that you are thinking about in terms of, maybe they don't have to be as formal as goals, but, but just things that you see ahead on the horizon for you? So on the horizon, things that I want to do, First of all, in Magic the Gathering, I do want to be hosting more tournaments and stuff. Hopefully limited as a format, which is the format that I'm known for. And the only format in Magic that I truly enjoy. I hope that that is eventually going to be a, a serious part of the competitive scene, I suppose. And part of that, I don't actually want to be... I don't actually want to be a competitor. You know, I've had enough competing, in all honesty... Uh, in uh, in my Hearthstone days, these days I'm happy to just be a personality. I like I like my stream. I don't want to give that up. I would love to commentate tournaments and stuff, and you know, just talk about Magic the Gathering, talk about limited. That's uh, you know, and just 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 talk about the thing that I love to other people, and to uh, I guess share my knowledge and insight with others as well. That's kind of my Magic the Gathering goal. Hypothetically, is there something that you would share with yourself five years into the future? Just imagine that you could go forward in time, right? If you could go to, it's 2019 right now. If you go to 2024 and tell the future Death Sea something, 
to make sure that he holds on to something that you are holding with you right now, what would that be? Like, what advice would you give the the futuristic Death Sea? Hmm. Hmm. That's a hard one. Maybe, maybe like creatures are a scam. <laughs> don't play creatures, <laughs> Desi. <laughs> I mean, that's a really good question. I don't actually know. Uh, one thing that I that I hope that I don't forget is just, I guess, how important having viewers and community members who actually, who actually, you know, wait and watch every single day. People who donate and stuff like that. There are a lot of my moderators and viewers who donate just abnormal amounts of money for no reason. I think it's a waste, you know, like that's a lot of money that they should be careful of what they're doing with that money. <laughs> so uh, basically, I just don't want to forget the kindness that people have shown and the support that allows me to do what I do today. And I think that that's probably something that I will forget or that's something that I'll have to remind myself for. That's fine. You can just play this back in five years into the future and listen to it. And, you know, <laughs> you'll get it. You'll be right back here. It was really a pleasure talking to you today. I, it kind of started off as I just wanted to know more about you, but we went deeper and deeper. And I really appreciate you taking the time. And now I feel like I have a, a little bit of a better picture. So I want to really thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Here's to the future. And uh, thank you to everybody who... Uh... I guess, makes this reality uh, possible in the first place. means a lot. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Bye, James.